Welcome to the Truth Labs podcast with me, Gary Schroeder. Why do people believe what they believe? Author and speaker James Sire conducts the following experiment with a group of students whenever he gives a seminar on campus. So I want to read you this back and forth dialogue and then comment on why I think we're all going bat poop crazy. Okay, so Sire, well, I'll just use Professor instead of his last name. Professor, he's talking to his students here. I see that many of you cited sociological factors. For example, many people have beliefs because their parents have chosen those same beliefs, or they have those same beliefs. Do you think that alone is a good enough reason to believe something? So if we go one step back, the professor here has outlined a number of criteria to try to help answer this question, why do people believe the things that they believe? And so he at least puts forth four different categories. Number one is sociological reasons. And so some of those may be your parents, friends, society, culture. So just as we began the dialogue, you may believe what you believe because your parents believed it. Um, This is similar to a previous episode where we said, well, people's religious beliefs, let's say, are just because of where they grew up. You know, their society, culture, parents. The second category is psychological reasons why you believe what you believe. So you may believe it because it's comfort Maybe it gives you peace of mind, gives you a sense of meaning, purpose, hope, identity. These are all various psychological reasons you might believe what you believe. The third is religious. So you may believe in scripture, kind of an ancient religious book. Maybe your pastor or priest or some kind of religious figure has indicated something is true and you follow that person. Um, similar type, guru, rabbi, iman, your church, kind of your group of religious people, but third category, religious. And the fourth is philosophical reasons. So consistency, coherence, completeness, uh, basically evaluating evidence, logic, etc. And so based on those four categories, again, psychological sociological, psychological, religious, and philosophical, then this author goes through this dialogue with the students. He asks first, is sociological, is that good enough? The students say, no, parents can sometimes be wrong. Well, the professor says, okay, what about cultural influences? Do you think people ought to believe something just because it's accepted culturally? Students, no, not necessarily. The Nazis had a culture that accepted the murder of all Jews. That sure didn't make it right. Professor, good. Okay, good. Now, some of you mentioned psychological factors such as comfort. Is that a good enough reason to believe something? Students, no, we're not, quote, comfortable with that. Seriously, comfort is not a test for truth. We might be comfortable that the belief that there is a God, but... Who, what does that have to do with anything? That doesn't necessarily mean he exists. 
Likewise, a junkie might temporarily be comforted by a certain type of drug, but that drug might actually kill him. Professor, so you're saying that truth is important because there can be consequences when you're wrong. Students, yes, if someone were to be wrong about a drug, they might take too much and die. Likewise, if someone is wrong about the thickness of the ice, they might fall through and freeze to death. Professor, so for pragmatic reasons, it makes sense that we should only believe things that are true. Students, of course, over the long run, truth protects and error harms. Okay, Professor, sociological and psychological reasons alone are not adequate grounds to believe something. But what about religious reasons? Some mention the Bible, others the Quran, still others that their belief from priests or gurus. Should you believe something just because some religious source or holy book says so? Students, no, because the question arises, whose scripture or whose source should you believe? After all, they teach contradictory things. Well, can you give me an example? Says a professor of students, well, the, the Bible and the Quran, for example, can't both be true because they contradict one another. The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross and rose three days later, while the Quran says he existed, but he didn't die on the cross. On the cross. If one is right, the other is wrong. Then again, if Jesus never existed, both are wrong. Professor, so how could we adjudicate between, say, the Bible and the Quran? Students, we need some proofs outside of those so-called scriptures to help us discover which, if either, is true. Professor, from which category could we derive such proofs? Students, all we have left is the philosophical category. Professor, but how can someone's philosophy be a proof isn't that just someone's opinion? Students, no, we don't mean that kind of philosophy or philosophy in that sense. We mean it in the classic sense of the word, where philosophy means finding truth through logic, evidence, and science. Professor, so with that definition, that's excellent. With that definition, let's ask the same question of a philosophical category. Is something worth believing if it is rational, if it is supported by evidence, and if it is the best explanation for the data that we have? Students, that certainly seems right to us. So, as a recap, if we consider these four categories for why we should believe something, the first is sociological. The dialogue there, prove that out. That's not a reason that, a reason alone why we should believe something. Psychological reasons should not be the only ones based on this context here. Religious should not be because they contradict. You don't know which ones you should believe. And so the last one we're left with is philosophical. And in this case, philosophy in the classic sense of logic, evidence, and science using rationality to figure out what is the best explanation for the evidence that you have. So that dialogue was from this book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. Um, but we're not going to talk about 
religious things. That book is obviously focused on religion, particular the, the Christian faith and making arguments for it. Um, it's always a hilarious title. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Um, but again, we're not going to talk about that. We are making a turn here in the podcast um, just for a different section or series of episodes. I have no idea how many we'll get into, but this is, as I always have been, but purposefully and coming right out and saying it, this is me explicitly checking myself into the truth lab. And a, a little bit of the backstory, and I won't go into a lot of depth in this episode, we will as they unfold, is a journey over the last four years where I've really tried to understand why people believe the things that they believe. Now, I'm not talking neurologically. I'm not talking about things like that. I'm not even talking about God questions. I'm talking about questions that really have, on the surface, have really come up in political dialogues or social issue dialogues over the last four years. And of course, these things have been going on for for many years, long before I've been alive. Um, But there's just been something that is so palpable in the last number of years. And at the time of this recording, uh, early July 2020, there has been like a colossal at the forefront clashing of ideologies, let's say. And I've just wondered, why do people believe the things that they believe? And this topic is so big, it's candidly, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around. And I'm, I'm really, or I have tried the best that I can to understand a person's viewpoint that I disagree with. And I try to figure out if, the, if you know, and it's kind of like, it's challenging, right? Because we live in a soundbite, chopped up, edited clip culture right now. And, you know, Twitter shows you 30 seconds of a video and you're just completely outrageous or outraged. And then, then you go to the one minute version and you're like, oh, that, well, that actually, that little bit of context, that wasn't so bad. And then you go to like the four minute version and then you're back to being outraged again. And so it's challenging because we're, 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 we're limiting ourselves to this really bite size consumption of the story of the narrative. Um, and so I've tried to figure out whenever that has happened to me personally, uh, like really stress test my own thinking, like number one, like emotionally, why is there a reaction in me right now? Like I, I read a sign or I see somebody who is espousing a view that I don't believe, at least from what I understand their point to be, I, man, I don't agree with that. But emotion, there's like an, an internal visceral reaction. And then I just had to, when that just kept coming up again and again and again, I just had to figure out like what in the world is, is causing that, that frankly, like selfishly, like, I don't want that. Like that's just causing me to be like upset and emotional. And so I'd rather just have a life of like living in peace and tranquility. But 
I wasn't. And I was, there's things that were causing a reaction. Um, but then also intellectually, like, what does that person, what is their point really? I don't, I mean, maybe there's a portion of the population that lives, you know, soundbite to soundbite and they really don't, they actually don't know what they believe or more importantly, they don't know why they believe it. They haven't stress test their own thinking. There is, I'm sure, many people like that. But I think the majority of people, I think if you dig in a little bit, you scratch the surface, let's say, there is something deeper to it. There are reasons for why they believe what they believe. And so I try to, again, I guess the point is just trying to like really pressure or push myself to really uncover or surface what those reasons would actually be. And in time and time again, and maybe in some future episodes, we'll, we'll venture out into like very specific things. Um, time and time again, you scratch the surface, then you start digging, and you start digging, and you start digging, and you realize there's not good reasons for a lot of what people believe. And I just like, or, you know, that was the first reaction. I just said, man, like it just, what, what is the case? What's the logic behind this? How does A get to B and how does B get to C? You're at W, like how to, like, let's go back and try to figure out, okay, is A valid? Is B valid? Et cetera. And time and time again, as I try to track back the argument, and again, the argument is just maybe in a soundbite or a tweet or a sign in a yard or a banner on a truck or whatever the case may be. Uh, and this is like all kinds of like both sides of any side of political argument, social issues, all like the, the, the group of people in a sense doesn't matter. But as I tried to keep backtracking, I realized like there are non sequiturs back all the way through the alphabet, non sequitur meaning like it doesn't, like, given A, it doesn't follow, B doesn't follow. You say something and then automatically you create a conclusion, B, that they actually don't follow. And so in my own thinking, I'm just like, what is going on here? And so without all the preamble of, like, <laughs> getting into my mind, I just try to figure out how did we get here in 2020 in an environment where it doesn't seem that rational thought is prevailing in almost any circle that I can find. How did we get to the point where the dialogue between the professor and the students that I began this episode with, their conclusion was that we should believe things that we believe based not on sociological reasons, psychological reasons, religious reasons, but in fact, we should believe what we believe based on reason, truth, logic, science, evidence. How do we get to a point where that conclusion that they had actually does not apply today? And that led me, okay, I'm going to go in a little little heady here, a little intellectual here, but I just had to understand where, where were the roots? Where were the roots? And so I've been reading through a book 
called Explaining Postmodernism, Subtitle Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault by Professor Stephen Hicks. And that's where I want to kind of take this episode. And, you know, I had heard, uh, you know, I'm not a stranger to the notion of this phrase postmodernism. I'll try to define it here. Um, not a, not a, a newbie, a rookie to the notion of revisionist history. Um, I have a degree in history. Um, so I'm not, um, a novice when it comes to the marrying of these two things and intellectual history and intellectual underpinnings, and then that being carried out into the field of the humanities, which I got my undergraduate degree in history. But honestly, I never dug that much into it. I had intellectuals during my undergraduate degree that you know, warred against each other on both sides, but I had one side that was, you know, many times would say things like, man, this postmodern philosophy is just, is just eating away at everything we believe. And honestly, when I first, like, heard them, number one, I was like, uh, at first, you know, I'm like, what, what are you talking about, postmodern, what does that even mean? And then the second thought was like, man, you are really, like, too, like conspiracy theory, intellectual, like just come back to earth and like, let's go get a hamburger, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm, you know, wasn't, it wasn't that sophisticated in my own thinking. Um, and, you know, I'm still on a journey. But they were quite concerned. And it's been many years since a lot of those conversations uh, on a university campus many years ago for myself. And I've just observed time and time again, things occurring that, again, at first you're like, uh, well, that's probably just a little fluke. That's probably just a little flare up. Like, well, people are clearly not looking at the evidence here and that's why they're having their view. And hey, man, you know, out of a hundred people, there's always going to be a couple of people that are, you know, think up is down, down is up, left, right, etc. But then we get ourselves to the past, like I said, four years, maybe five, and the increasing severity, let's say, of discussion around rational thought and logic, a searching of for truth is not the basis upon any of our public discourse. So I had to like reevaluate this. And that's what led me to this book, chapter one, what is or what postmodernism is. So this is very kind of intellectual, might not be your cup of tea, but I'll just read a little bit and and kind of expand upon it, you know, as I'm, as I'm able. So let's just begin. Post, the postmodern vanguard. By most accounts, we have entered a new intellectual age. We are postmodern now. Leading intellectuals tell us that modernism has died and that a revolutionary era is upon us, an era liberated from the oppressive strictures of the past, but at the same time disquieted by the expectations for the future. Even postmodernism's opponents, surveying the intellectual scene and not liking what they see, acknowledge a new cutting edge. 
in the in the intellectual world there has been a changing of the guards so michael falcult i don't know if that's how you pronounce the name so the book here has identified the major targets of the postmodern movement here quote all my analyses are against the idea of universal necessities in human existence. Such necessities must be swept aside as baggage from the past. It is meaningless to speak in the name of or against reason, truth, or knowledge. Okay. So that's just a couple of paragraphs, but that is, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit more. Um, but the central tenet of this intellectual movement is a sweeping aside of the baggage from the past. And the baggage from the past is reason, truth, or knowledge. Okay. There is no world or self to understand and get right on their terms. If there is that, if there is no world or no self to understand, there's no world or no self to get right on their terms, then what is the purpose of thought or action? Having deconstructed reason, truth, and the idea of the correspondence of thought to reality, then set them aside. Reason, this author says, is the ultimate language of madness. Reason is the ultimate language of madness. There is nothing to guide or, or constrain our thoughts or feelings. So we can do or say whatever we feel. Okay. Many postmodernists, though, are less often in the mood for aesthetic play than political activism. So here's the, here's the transition of the intellectual, which again, we're going to unpack more, the intellectual underpinnings of sweeping aside of reason, truth, and knowledge, not just for some you know, aesthetic play, but for political activism. Many deconstruct reason, truth, and reality because they believe in the name of reason, truth, and reality Western civilization has wrought dominance, oppression, and destruction. Reason and power are one and the same. Reason and power are one and the same. Both lead to and are synonymous with, quote, prisons, prohibitions, selection process, the public good. Postmodernism then becomes an activist strategy against the coalition of reason and power. It seeks not to find the foundation and the conditions of truth, but to exercise power for the purpose of social change. The task of postmodern professors, <laughs> oh man, we got to get into that. Uh, in some episode, but the task of postmodern professors is to help students, quote, spot, confront, and work against the political horrors of one's time. 
All right, so let's unpack this a little bit if this is your first time hearing of this phrase postmodern. Well, if you're postmodern, and that's the period we live in now, then there was a period of time that was modern. And if that was a period of time known as modernism, then there was a period of time that you could classify as pre-modernism. So we're going to look at three different distinctive periods here. This is not going to be a full intellectual uh, history of this uh, intellectual philosophy. We're going to unpack this um, as we see fit, you know, using this book and others. But pre-modernism is really kind of pre-enlightenment, pre-enlightenment. And so that's where people would say things like, um, you know, what is your, your metaphysical, how are you determining metaphysical truth? Well, you would say it's based on realism, but your mechanism for measuring realism is supernaturalism, supernaturalism. So this is much more of a pre-science age, pre-enlightenment age definition of how something came into being. And we covered a lot of those and we were focused more on religious topics, but this was pre, you could call this pre-science in some ways. So pre-modernism, you're looking at not naturalism, but super naturalism. So your, your epistemology and epistemology is like your theory of knowledge, right? How do you come up with something? How do you come up with your truth was more of mysticism like more faith-centric. Um, you had this notion for human nature of original sin subject to God's will. Um, your ethics were really collectivism, altruism, etc. And this is, just from a timeline perspective, you could consider that as kind of the medieval era. Okay? So, in our I was going to say modern in our in our 2020 minds, you know, the medieval period kind of pre-modernism is so far in the distant past that, you know, outside of historians and maybe philosophers, no one even thinks about it, really. We because we transitioned into this modern period. Late 1600s, 1700s, um, up until really the middle of the 20th century. Um, we're in this modern period where your, your metaphysical definition, how you define the metaphysical realities were, were also realism. So that was similar to pre-modernism. But your, the way you, you looked for what was real was not supernatural. It was natural. So a big shift away from supernatural to natural and that's why you have a lot of people, um, you know, just humans in general, but in our previous discussions, you, atheists, scientists would say naturalism is the basis of determining what is actually real, your realism. So all the way down, you think what you think because there are certain molecules, da, 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 da. So it's always basing all the way down to, you could look at this as materialism. All of reality is defined by what is in nature. So your epistemology is experience and reason. So your theory of knowledge, how you come up with the truth, is not mysticism, it's not faith, it's 
your experience and its reason. The Enlightenment view of human nature was this notion of you know, tabula rasa, a blank slate. You're not, you as an individual, you're not stained with original sin. You're not subject to some supernatural will of God. Um, you have autonomy. You can make your own choices because you are a blank slate. What you paint on that blank slate or what you write on it is up to you. You're not worried about the collective group of people you're worried about or you're focused on the individual. Even political and economically, pre-modernism is kind of focused more feudalism, subject to a lord and master, versus in the modern period, liberal capitalism. Okay, and so this was the Enlightenment period, the 20th century, etc. So that's kind of contrasting pre-modernism to modernism. But now we're post-modern, which you could say is post-enlightenment. So let's go to the book here. Post-modernism versus the Enlightenment. It's as a pause here. Okay, not in the book. As a pause. Um... Yeah, how do you formulate the words? I mean, even that title of this section, something versus the Enlightenment. And you have to go back, and if you're you know, not a student of history and things like that, you're like, oh, what was the Enlightenment again? Something I studied way back in the day. Well, this was the foundational turn of ent- our entire world, for sure, Western civilization, which we'll get into. People hate and <laughs> postmodernists hate Western civilization. But everything that you can think of from a scientific perspective all the way through up to and including medicine, technology that, you know, you're using in your phone to tweet, you know, hateful things or whatever. Um, That's all from this period founded on these principles. And so if you are going to make the case that your intellectual lattice or framework, foundation and building is going to be versus all of that progress, you, you kind of have to really, like, really stress test yourself. And you say, well, all of these basic principles of logic, reason, looking at evidence, scientific method brought us, let's just focus on medicine. Now, you think the entire system, we'll get into this, the entire system is That's not how we should focus on things. We shouldn't focus on logic and reason. We should just realize because reason is power and ultimately everything is just a power struggle. Then what are you going to do with all the advances we've made in medicine or technology? You're listening to this podcast on a piece of technology that was born from principles in the Enlightenment. Um, It's just really hard to, to wrap your head around, but understanding the philosophical tenets help us at least a little bit do that. So postmodernism rejects the entire Enlightenment project. It holds that modernist premises, the modernist premises of the Enlightenment, were untenable from the beginning, and that their cultural manifestations have now reached their nadir. While the modern world continues to speak of reason, freedom, in progress, its pathologies tell another story. The postmodern critique of those pathologies is offered 
as a death keel of modernism. Quote, the deepest strata of Western culture. Okay. The deepest strata of Western culture. The Western culture that most likely, if you're listening to this, you're probably in the West. You are, again, just you're a recipient of a piece of technology that allows you to actually listen to this built on a system of liberal capitalism that is allowing that company to be incentivized to build a piece of technology like that. And it's, again, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a defense of, you know, capitalism without its faults, but these are all principles from the enlightenment. But now it's, it's an indictment here. They're, the postmodernist movement is indicting Western culture. The deepest strata are once more stirring under our feet. Say they now both that the age of faith and the enlightenment seem beyond recovery. Postmodernism rejects the Enlightenment project in the most fundamental way possible by attacking its essential philosophical themes. Postmodernism rejects the reason and individualism that the entire Enlightenment world depends upon. And so it ends up attacking all the consequences of the Enlightenment philosophy from capitalism and liberal forms of government to science and technology. Postmodernism's essentials are the opposite of modernism's. In other words, the essential tenets of postmodernism are the opposite of the Enlightenment. Instead of natural reality, you have anti-realism. Instead of experience and reason, you have linguistic social subjectivism. Instead of individual identity and autonomy, you have various race, sex, and class groupisms. Instead of human interests as fundamentally harmonious and tending toward mutually beneficial interaction, you have conflict and oppression. Instead of valuing individualism in values, markets, and politics, you have calls for communalism, solidarity, and egalitarian restraints. Instead of prizing the achievements of science and technology, you have suspicion tending on outright hostility. Okay, so this is our kind of three-part juxtaposition of pre-modernism, modernism, post-modernism. Pre-modernism, most people aren't even you know, thinking along those lines unless you have spiritual or religious inclinations. Most people have been, for 250 years, 300 years, have been focused on these tenets of naturalism, experience and reason, individualism, liberal capitalism, science and technology. You've been focused on that, but now, I say now, it's not like it just appeared in the last six months or something. Now, really, in the back half of the 20th century and the first fifth here of the 21st century, you're realizing a completely different ideology. So instead of searching for what is real, so this is this notion of the, your metaphysical inclinations. You had one group, one period of time, where it was faith, and you had naturalism, materialism, so supernatural versus natural. Now in the postmodern era, you're actually, it's anti-realism. There is nothing real. 
there is no truth. And to say that you think something is true because it logically follows, A follows, B follows A, C follows B, therefore conclusion is true, for you to say that, that is just synonymous with you being some the patriarchal tyranny and you suppressing me, you're trying to rise above me in a power struggle, not in something of what is real and not real, true and not true. It's a power struggle. So instead of working on experience and reason, now there's social subjectivism. Group subjectivity defines what is real, although they say there's nothing actually really real. There is no tree outside my window. Or at least there is no way that I can actually ever really know that tree because I'm just observing it and it's being discolored, let's say, filtered through my senses. Therefore, there's no actual way I can come up with the truth definition of that tree. And so therefore, the only thing that's quote-unquote real is how we as a group of people subjectively feel about that tree. So instead of being individuals, being a tabula rasa, blank slate, you have full autonomy, create your, your own destiny. It's all, in the postmodern view, it's all a social construction and focused on conflict. Not focused on a history of increasing harmony, harmonious actions towards working together collectively to create a better future. Actually, it's all just conflict. And it's just a social construct. There's nothing real or not real. It's just what society has said it to be real. We have to go back to the episode we did 45 minutes or an hour on relativism. This is this is a this is a this is where it comes from. This is where it comes from. And then you get into things that we just we don't have the time for this episode, but you know, it's because it deserves more attention. When you get into on the political side, which of course on the surface, that's what a lot of the tension and the conflict is today. Uh, social media, maybe in your own neighborhoods, your own cities, it's it seems to be political or there are social issues. But actually the underpinning, the roots, you know, you're, we're all looking at the fruit of the tree. And I'm looking at, like I said at the beginning, I've been checking myself into the lab to try to figure out what in the world, where did this fruit come from? This fruit is just, it's something I've never seen before. Uh, When you say up is down and left is right, I'm just, I'm really having a hard time figuring that out. And if it was just one or two people, it's okay. But then you have, you know, an increasing majority of people saying something is left when it's like, I'm just like, well, no, that's, that's right. And your first inclination is, oh, well, they just made a mistake. You know, it's like you small child. You just, oh, you just got your left and right mixed up. But then you have an increasing double digit percentage of people. And and candidly, it's hard to figure out, you know, I mean, I think it's like less than 5% of at least the American population that are on Twitter. And of that 5%, you know, I think 80% comprise all, you know, 20% comprise 80% of the actual tweets, so it's hard to see what's actually representative of the population, the population in this case being the U.S., not the world. That being said, though, it does seem like there's this increasing buy-in acceptance to saying left is right and right is left. It's just, it's very, it's very strange for me to wrap my head around. 
So let's read some of the cultural themes that postmodernism is interacting with. Okay. So the number one, these are really themes, but they're, they're debates. Okay. So the number one here, whether the Western canon of great books is a distillation of the best of the West and reflected or reflective of a multifaceted debate or whether it is ideologically narrow, exclusive, and intolerant. So this is, this is a debate at the forefront. And, and <laughs> candidly, um, these don't actually seem like a debate. Like the inmates have already taken over and they're running the asylum or they're running the prison and they've already declared themselves winners. Like the usually politically or ideologically left leaning people would already would, would say this isn't even a debate. This is just an obvious thing that your Western books that you're passing down from generation to generation is, is not, is not the best of the West. It's not reflective of a multifaceted debate. It is ideologically narrow, exclusive, and intolerant. I've already gotten these emails from the school district where I live for my small children stating there's a whole nother set of books that that need to be read. And again, I'm I'm personally all for being wide read and having various perspectives. Here's the here's the issue is that the case, again, based on the postmodern tenets that we've at least tried to introduce in this episode, they if it just stopped at Hey, look, man, like your field of vision is only 70%. And we really want to expand that out to do a full 180. You focus, but you have just increase your peripheral vision uh, to see what what the real situation is. I I don't think any any person built on modernist values, enlightenment values, would disagree with that at all. The problem is... When you say your 70% so-called vision is actually blindness and this 30% over here, I'm just making up these percentages, you know, get the point though. This, this other percentage, that's the real history. Those are the real books. All these other books, they need to be burned. I mean, that is increasingly where we're heading. And the challenge here from a historical perspective, and again, like I'm not a professional historian, but I got my undergraduate degree in history. The challenge becomes this, there are no finite number of ways that a finite group of people could interpret a set of events. So in other words, that's all history is. That's what these Western canon of great books, let's just focus on the history side of things, philosophies, you could get into that as well, but let's focus on history. Seems to be a common theme at the time of this recording. Let's rewrite history. Well, if you have 50 people, again, history is just a collection of human stories, their lives at a particular point or a a period of points over time. But let's just use a concrete example. 50 people go to a party. You get done, they get done with the party. You come back to them a week later, year later, 10 years later, 20 years later, 
and you ask those 50 people what happened at the party. Well, you're going to get some sort of a Venn diagram of the factual things, most likely. You know, your, the party took place at, a, at this time. It was at this location. Roughly, these are the people that were there. So you're going to get some overlap. Probably a lot of overlap when it comes to the hard facts. But then you get into the interpretation of the events. And then you get into people's interpretation of the motivation of other people that were there. So say 20 years later, you're recounting two people giving, two people are recounting the event. One person recounts that the other person spilled a drink on their new blouse or their new shirt. And you say, well, elaborate on that a little bit. And then you say, well, that's because that person was this gender and they were doing that out of spite and malice because that was deep rooted in their, their lineage. And then you ask the other person, they say, I'm just clumsy. I just tripped on the couch. It was my bad for sure. But then you start to realize that, okay, well, now you're going to, you're the historian. You're trying to recount what happened. Are both of those things, were both of their perspectives true as it is relative to them, their subjective feeling? Yes, it was. So what do you record as a historian? Well, you should record both. You should record both. You should. Now, if 49 out of the 50 people there tell you the same story, well, then it increases your confidence that that is what actually happened, or at least that was an accurate, accurate portrayal of the sentiment of what happened. Here's the challenge, another challenge with history, and I'll go quickly wrap this up in a, in a few minutes. When you're looking at a wide berth of evidence that you have for a particular historical event or period of time, um, especially in you know the last half of the 20th century, the first fifth of the 21st century, where we are right now, especially with everyone being a documentarian in the sense of everyone uh, can record a little bit of audio or take a photo or you, you're trying to figure out what happened relative uh, and your, your source of evidence is you know, 50,000 tweets. Um, very challenging, very challenging. But when you, if you're honest and you're looking at this, all the evidence that you can actually account for, you have to realize like the event or the period of time is like a picture. And if the evidence tells you that picture is a picture of a tiger and that tiger is on the savanna somewhere and over in the corner, there's a tree and on that tree, there's a branch. The branch has a leaf, and the leaf has a ladybug, and the ladybug has an antenna. Well, you can look at that historical event or that period of history and say, that is a picture of a ladybug antenna. That ladybug antenna was real. Look at it. It's real. And if you're an honest person, you would say, well, yeah, it's there. I definitely agree that that, that ladybug is there. But then you step back and you say, okay, not ignoring the ladybug, not ignoring the savanna and the grass, and not ignoring the tree, not ignoring the clouds and the sun. Like, overwhelmingly, what was that a picture of? Is it, it's a picture of a tiger. It's a picture of a tiger. That, that's the job of an honest historian. 
Okay, quickly here, we'll just go through a few of these. I don't know if I'll read. Oh, we can read all of them, it's fine. Okay, the second debate here, whether Christopher Columbus was a modern hero, bringing two worlds together to their mutual benefit, or whether he was an insensitive, smugly superior point of man for European imperialism, bringing armed force that rammed European religion and values down the indigenous culture's throats. Same thing. Both both things can be true at the same time. Like, there can be elements of both of those things at the same time. What do you want to do? That's, that's true. What's the most predominant? Is it, what's the tiger? Is it, is it either one of those of the tiger? Are both of those both of those true? We have to look at the evidence. Number three, whether the United States of America is progressive on liberty, equalities, and opportunities for everyone, or whether it is sexist, racist, and class-bound. For example, using its mass market pornography and glass ceilings to keep women in their place. These are the discussions. That should be happening, but of course, in our current political, social, social media climate, these conversations actually aren't happening other than with a small group of people. Whether our ambivalence over affirmative action programs reflects a strong desire to be fair to all parties, or, or whether those programs are merely a cynical bone throw to women and minorities until they've seen to be helping, at which point there is a violent reaction by the, quote, status quo. Number five, whether social conflicts should be diffused by, an encouraging, by encouraging the principle that individuals should be judged according to their individual merits and not according to the morally irrelevant features such as race or sex, or whether group identities should be affirmed and celebrated and whether those who balk at doing so should be sent for mandatory sensitivity training. This one is an ideological tenet that is, man, this one above, at least the ones I've read so far, may be the biggest one today. Maybe the biggest p- part of the conflict today, other than the fact of what I mentioned earlier, that we're going to just try to sweep aside this whole notion of rationality, logic, and reason when you do that, the narrative becomes not does B follow from A and C follow from B. It's you suck, I hate you, period. <laughs> it's like you're not actually evaluating the merits of someone's argument. You're evaluating, like this quote says here, the morally irrelevant features such as race or sex. And this is hard. I mean, if you're going to be actual, you know, I'll mention the Bible here, but if you're going to actually speak truth in love, you need to be able to see both sides of these things. And you have to be able to see like the political situation relative to history, but you also need to be able to see where we are today. But a big challenge here is this notion, this philosophical notion that, no, actually, we're not here recognizing that you're tabula rasa and you have autonomy to create your own destiny, let's say. Um you're actually just, that's just a social construct and everything is dealt with via conflict. 
And so if that's your philosophical underpinnings, man, that's hard. That is going to be hard because you are implicitly passing on either in yourself or if you're verbal and you're out in the, in the open world about it, you're passing on this notion that your history is your destiny or even the history of distant, distant, distant ancestors is your personal destiny. I don't, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe any, there's been any evidence really that that fact is true. Like I've been quite fortunate to be born into this country. Uh, I, my parents divorced quite early in life. I don't ever remember them being together, but they were both, you know, of course, separated, but they were both absolutely deeply involved in my life. I benefited greatly from that. Here's the thing. Um, this is a little personal, but one generation prior to that, let me just say this. So if you look at me now, you're listening and say, oh, come on, man, we're not here to, you know, you're not looking, listening to logic or reason or anything like that. You're, you're the white man. You're, you're suppressing all of us. Of course, you're, you're privileged. Look at you. Like, your dad's an attorney. Okay. Well, one generation before that, um, my father was a teenager and his father died unexpectedly. His, his mother had an eighth grade education. They're about as poor as you can be. So his mother needs to go work tanning leather as a job. So that's one generation. So he could have said, look, I've been dealt a raw hand here. Uh, the circumstances around the loss of his father were unbelievably tragic. But my father didn't say, well, I'm just going to let that history be my destiny. No, he didn't do that. He hustled and worked harder than most people I've ever known to get to where he is today. And out of his fundamental values, ethics, and character, he passed on not only those values, ethics, and character to his children as best he could and as best we would, be, we would receive that, but also passed on certain opportunities and certain things that were fortunate, we were fortunate enough to inherit because he made those decisions. Okay. And so that was a little bit of a personal tangent. Sorry about that, but it just always comes back to me like I'm absolutely personally, as an individual, I'm so fortunate to be born in this country, to have parents that were for me. And if you look at like my economic status, I mean, we're middle class, you could say, growing up. But one generation before that wasn't like that at all. But an individual man, my father, made Good decision after good decision. And he's not perfect. No one, that, that's not the point. But he didn't let his history become his destiny. I'll tell you the story of my mom's side another day. Um, here's one point I want to make. And this is a challenge I've, I've had in discussions with some folks when it comes to the notion of uh, equality. And again, it's generally along these dimensions of race and sex. 
and you know I love equality of opportunity um, the equality of outcome which is what most people are referring to when they'd have these discussions I I don't know so I'll just mention it like this you know a couple of people about four or five years ago a group um, supporting the Black Lives Matter organization came to my front door and we had a 30-45 minute conversation with those folks. And I, I just kept asking the question, like, what does ultimate success look like? Because if we know what ultimate success looks like, in, in other words, if we know what the destination is, then we can plot milestones along that pathway so that we know that we're tracking towards success or that we're not and we need to course correct. And the two people there couldn't even agree with each other on what success actually looked like and what ultimately, the, there, was, there was a man and a woman, um, what the woman eventually, and the man disagreed with this uh, without offering his own, kind of what his own thoughts on success would be, but what the woman said, and this was, again, on the racial lines of really Caucasian versus African-American, her point was everything at every strata of society up to and including prisons on the negative side, or corporate CEOs, if that's your definition of success on the other extreme, every single strata was 50-50. And so that was a definition of success. But then you have to look at it like this. You say, similar to what I, the way I describe history, is you have to say it like this. To have a 50-50, what you're referring to are two groups of individuals. But then you have to realize there are no, there is not or there is no finite way that you can divide a group of individuals. In other words, you can divide that group of individuals, let's call it a thousand people, you can divide that thousand people along almost an infinite number of dimensions. Now you might push back and you're like, come on man, like that's just, that sounds all intellectual, you're just trying to avoid the issue. And then you say, well, let's do it. Let's try it. So you need 50-50 along at least... African-American and Caucasian, that's what the Black Lives Matter organization folks came to me and said. So that would be ultimate success. And we got to, we'll track it quarter over quarter, or year over year, whatever the right cadence is. Are we tracking 50-50? Are we tracking 50-50? But those aren't the only two races. So then what, what else should we include? Well, Asian-Americans. Okay, so now you're doing 33-33-33. Is that, is that equal? What, yeah, okay. But then you have Hispanic Americans, and then, you, then you're dealing with 25, 25, 25, 20 percentages. But then you say, well, why are we dealing with just Americans? Like, we're not, it's not just about America. It's about, like, countries. Like, well, you, you can say, you're, oh, you're African American. was like, well, what about, I have a, a wonderful friend from Uganda. Well, like, should we have equal representation for everyone from Uganda? And you say, well, that's silly, but it's like, you get the point. There's no finite, where, where does the line draw? And if ultimate success is equality, of not of opportunity, but of outcome, then we have to really start tracking percentages. Well, what about this notion of sex? 
And of course, like over the last four or five years, been a lot of discussion on how many genders are there. And again, back to gender is just a social construct. Well, you can have on one hand, people say there's just two. You can have on the other hand, I've heard up to a thousand, up to a thousand genders. You say, well, that's too many. Uh, that's silly. Not, not very many people are saying, well, how many are there? Just tell me, give me a specific number. That's hard for people to do. But say there's 10. So now you have, let's for easy sake, let's we're, there's, we're dealing with four races. So you need to have 25% representation from all of those. And now there's 10 genders. So you need to have representation for all of those. That's just along two broad categories of gender and race. We've now, there's no, the 50-50 success criteria that the Black Lives Matter group came to my door with no longer applies. So you have to have at least 25% along race dimensions, but now that's one out of four, but then you also have to have one out of 10 on the gender or sex dimension. But that's just two categories. You can imagine, well, we need equal representation across religious lines. Well, no, religion is dumb. Well, we don't want any of that. We just want 100% atheist. Well, that's not equality of outcome. So you can imagine that the actual tactical working out of an, perhaps an inspirational or good-hearted philosophical idea is almost impossible. So I, that doesn't mean we don't make directional improvements towards ensuring that every single person, regardless of all these different other group identity dividers, let's say, they have an opportunity to compete for the role, right? And so you can imagine in the same, if you were just like kind of thinking it's intellectual, like get out of here with that thou hypothetical thousand person company. Well, think about it like if you're a Lakers fan, well, why isn't that 50-50 male and female? Why isn't that divided along all the different racial lines? Why? Oh, because, yeah, there's no reason for it, right? You need, should, you should be in those positions because you're competent and skilled enough to be in those positions. Okay, another debate, whether life in the West, and especially America, is improving with average longevity and wealth increasing in each generation, or whether America has abandoned its urban underclass and fostered a bland consumerist culture of shopping malls and suburban sprawl. Whether the liberal West is leading the rest of the world to a freer and more prosperous future, or whether its heavy-handed intrusiveness in foreign policy and its command of the international financial markets are exploiting its McJobs to non-Western nations, locking them into the system, and destroying their indigenous cultures. Whether science and technology are good for all, extending our knowledge of the universe and making the world healthier, cleaner, and more productive, or whether science betrays its elitism, not sure how that works, sexism, and destructiveness by making the speed of light the fastest phenomenon, thereby unfairly privileging it over other speeds. Okay. <laughs> Last one here. And whether, in general, liberalism, free markets, and technology, and cosmopolitanism 
are social achievements that can be enjoyed by all cultures or whether non-Western cultures, since they live simply and in harmony with nature, are superior, and whether the West is arrogantly blind to that fact, being elitist and imperialistic, imposing its capitalism, its science, and its technology, and its ideology upon other cultures and increasingly fragile ecosystem. All right, so what makes all these debates postmodern is not the skirmishes, that the skirmishes are vigorous and heated, but that the terms of the debate have shifted. Modern debates over whether truth and reality, reason and experience, liberty and equality, justice and peace, beauty and progress. That's not what we're debating now. In the postmodern framework, those concepts may appear in quotation marks. Our most strident voices tell us that, quote, truth is a myth. Quote, reason is a white male Eurocentric construct. Quote, equality is a mask for oppressions. Quote, peace and, quote, progress are met with cynical and weary reminders of power. Postmodern debates thus display a paradoxical nature. Across the board, we hear, on the one hand, abstract themes of relativism and egalitarianism. Those themes come in both epistemological and ethical forms. Objectivity is a myth. There is no truth, no right way to read nature or a text. All interpretations are equally valid. Not sure how that works. Values are socially subjective products. Culturally, therefore, no group's values have special standing. All ways of life from Afghani to Zulu are legitimate. I guess except for the ones that the West, that's not legitimate, apparently. Okay, so therefore, postmodernism, therefore, is comprehensive, is a comprehensive philosophical and cultural movement. It defines or identifies its target. Its target is modernism and its realization in the Enlightenment and its legacy, and it mounts powerful arguments against all of the essential elements of modernism. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap up here. I know this was a little bit, you know, we got into a lot of different stuff. Some of these are controversial. Some of these, you, I you know, definitely push back on some of my views and these kind of things. But my view, and I interjected them a little bit here, um, but my intention in getting into this topic was not so much to really address political or social issues that are happening today, although I, I welcome that kind of discussion. It's really to understand where did we come from, or in other words, how did we get here? We're seeing fruit and branches from a tree that for many rational people, definitely students of history, are just wondering, that just doesn't seem like a logical progression. It seems like we're coming with non sequitur after non sequitur, and it could be from data literacy, I thought, illiteracy, I thought, um, not understanding actually statistics and how they work, I thought. Um, it may, I was you know thinking, oh, it's just because we're in the Twittersphere and we're not really paying that much attention to the, the context as much as we can understand it. But then I realized, no, we are 
at the tail, well, I don't know if we're on the tail end, we're definitely on the, the edge of a wave that began 60 years ago in our universities and perhaps small intellectual or philosophical circles when they realize that the political and economic system of communism and Marxism had utterly failed. Any rational person that has studied history would have told you that by the 60s, people were quite clear that that economic system was an utter failure. And so there was a transition from looking at Marxism as a political and economic system to the philosophical tenets of Marxism and where that born, where that came forth from was this notion of what has been termed postmodern, which again is focusing on the fact that there's nothing real. Realism is not, there's, there's no truth. There's no logic. It's not an evidence-based way of looking at things. And if you have that underpinning, that root system, of course, now that you can begin to see when you look out into society, why the tree is shaped that way, why the fruit looks that way, why everyone who eats that fruit, as far as I can tell, ends up in madness. And so I hope this episode just gave a little bit of an introduction to why perhaps some of you are thinking like, what in the world happened to us? And I had a family member describe it this way. uh, When they were in high school, you know, they were traveling down, running on a trail and saw a group of people and just said, hey, they're just there enjoying the trail the same as I am. So this person continued running. And before they knew it, those people that they had seen were on top of them, trying to assault them. And this person said, that's exactly how they feel society at large has been recently. That for the longest time, in this case, 60 years, whether you've been alive that long or not, it doesn't matter. But for 60 years, there's been this kind of, we're just running along. Yeah, we see this group of unsavory characters off into the distance, but we're just going to say that distance is, oh, that's just universities and intellectuals that don't actually do anything. They just think and research and stuff. So we're not going to pay that much attention to them or, oh, that's just college students. They'll grow out of it. You're just, you're running along your trail and you're seeing them off into the distance. No big deal. And then all of a sudden they're on top of you trying to assault you. And so now, in our next phase of the Truth Lab, we're going to explore this a little bit further, but now we need to realize, what do we do with this tree? Or what do we do now to the fact that these unsavory characters have made their way throughout all of society and now, in fact, are on top of assaulting people that still believe in enlightenment values like logic, reason, and truth?